Hi, my name's Lauren and I normally attend the 6pm service. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. Um, the Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I wonder, have you ever noticed how there are so few commands in the Bible to evangelize? I mean, just stop for a second, try and think of all the Bible verses which actually command you to go and share your faith with others. Can you think of any? Um, you'd have probably Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that might come to mind. Jesus telling his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, there's a, a good example of a command. What else? Um, maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 5, maybe that's one that, that pops into your head. Uh, where Paul says that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation and so therefore we implore people to be reconciled to God. That sounds like evangelism, doesn't it? Okay, what else? Maybe 1 Peter 3, we looked at that last week, uh, where we are told that we need to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we profess. Okay, that's not quite evangelism, but there's something evangelistic about it there. Can you think of any more commands in the Bible to evangelize? I've been thinking about this and I don't think there are many. I think you could probably count them all on one hand, actually. And so that begs a question, doesn't it? Why then do we bang on about evangelism so much? I mean, why are we doing this sermon series, which is designed to grip you and push you into evangelism? Uh, why do we make it a part of our mission statement as a church? that We want to make Christ known. I mean, is it really that big of a deal if there is so little in the Bible that explicitly commands evangelism? Well, I want to suggest to you that actually the commands towards evangelism in the Bible are really just the tip of the iceberg. And as I'm sure you know, 95% of the iceberg is underneath the water. And so it is when it comes to the motivation to evangelize. Uh, we've been looking at these big eternal realities that are, if you like, below the surface in the Bible. The reality of heaven and hell, the fact and cost of the cross. Uh, the Bible's vision of the future and where all of history is heading, the brevity of life. All these big realities sit beneath the surface in Scripture. And, and what I want to suggest is that they are something kind of like the engine room. They're the, the conceptual engines that fuel us in mission, if you like. And, and those realities are so woven throughout Scripture that when you believe them, when you are gripped by them, you actually don't need the commands to share the gospel with others because these realities have such a weight to them and such a, a logic to them uh, that when you're gripped by them, you are propelled outwards in mission regardless of any biblical commands that tell you to do so. Now, today's reality, the final reality we're thinking of, as Beck has already introduced, we're thinking about God's love for the lost, that is for lost people. And I would argue that this is probably the biggest reality of all, because in some ways the Bible is all about God's love for people who are lost. If you think about the two kind of bookends of the Bible, the Bible starts with the story about how humanity became lost, the fall of humanity 
in the Garden of Eden. At the other end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, we get a picture of people reunited again with God for eternity in paradise. And everything between those two bookends is, in one sense, the story of God searching for lost people and rescuing them and bringing them to himself. I mean, of course God loves the lost. I hope that's obvious. The scriptures ooze with the love of God. After all, I mean, we know that God is love, right? And so I hope it's, it's without question that God loves the lost. This is what we're going to think about today. How does God's love for the lost motivate us to share the gospel? Maybe that seems obvious to you, but we're going to try and tease that out. I think there's a very obvious implication that if God loves this world in its lostness, then so should we. In fact, I'm going to suggest that you can't be close to God and not grow in your own love for the lost. And so what I want to do with you today is to talk about how we can come to share that heart of God, that love that God has for the world in its lostness. And in the passage that we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 9, what I want to show you is that the first thing is that we need to see as Jesus saw. We need to see as Jesus saw so that we can feel as Jesus felt, so that we can do as Jesus did. So let's have a look in our passage and and see, first of all, how we need to see as Jesus saw. So we pick up the story here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 35, where we read that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now, this is kind of a a summary of what Jesus has been doing for the last couple of chapters in Matthew's gospel, actually. And Matthew tells us that Jesus, uh, as he's doing this ministry, uh, he comes across these crowds. He sees the crowds in verse 36. And you see the description. What What do these crowds look like to Jesus? They are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that kind of language and that metaphor of sheep and shepherds was pretty well known in Israel. It's common throughout the Old Testament. And it was both a way to describe uh, God's relationship with his people. So think, for example, of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, all that stuff. Uh, But it was also a way to describe the leaders of Israel and their relationship to the nation. So Moses and Joshua were both called shepherds of Israel, for instance. And later on in in Israel's history, the priests were called the shepherds of Israel. And often the priests are accused by the prophets for a dereliction of duty. They had failed as shepherds to, to guide and to protect and to feed the people. And that seems to be the sort of thing that Jesus has in mind when he looks at these crowds and he sees that they are harassed and helpless coming to him. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. I think that he's saying here that their leaders have failed them and now they're harassed and helpless. Well, harassed by what? Helpless in the face of what? Well, firstly, you know, in the context, they're suffering in one sense under the oppression of the occupying Roman forces, of course. And, And that's no joke. That's nothing to sneeze at. But I think the people that Jesus is coming across here and who are coming to him at this point They're people who have all of those kind of daily concerns and heartbreaks and difficulties of life just beating down on them. You remember in the the miracle stories in the gospel to this point, uh, Jesus has healed diseases. He's cured the sick. He's raised the dead. 
He's calmed the stormy seas. He's exercised demons. Jesus is shepherding people at this point. He's caring for them. He's making sure that they're safe in the face of danger. And all of those needs that they have, those sicknesses, those sorrows, that suffering, they're all hugely important. But uh, woven all throughout these miracle stories, actually, Jesus recognises that there's an underlying problem that is actually far, far worse than all of those things. And it's the problem of sin. When Jesus looks at people, he doesn't just see the surface level problems of, of suffering and sickness and death. He sees the spiritual reality beneath the surface. Do you remember the story at the beginning of chapter 9 uh, where Jesus heals the paralytic man? You remember that his paralysis wasn't actually his biggest problem. It was his sin that was the problem. And so, yes, Jesus heals him, but it's to show that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Or do you remember actually just after that in, in chapter 9, where Jesus is eating dinner with sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees complain to him and ask him, why are you associating with, with such despicable, awful people? And what does Jesus say? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinner. You see, sin is the problem. And in the face of sin, we are all helpless. And so the real downfall of the leaders of Israel is that they aren't, and in fact they can't, deal with people's sin. These people desperately needed a shepherd who can protect them from the judgment of God and can rescue them from their sin. And that's what Jesus sees when he looks at them. I wonder, is that what you see when you look at the crowds, at your neighbours, at your work colleagues, at, at your family? Do you see people in desperate need of a good shepherd? In the backyard of the house that I grew up in uh, as a kid, we had lots of big, beautiful uh, gum trees. Uh, I really loved that backyard. I loved those big, beautiful trees. And we had uh, one year a guy from the council who came out to do an inspection. And it turned out that uh, one tree in particular was a, a, tr a tree which was quite close to the house. It was riddled with termites. And that was a bit of a surprise to us because from our perspective, you know, the tree looked fine. It was over 20 metres tall, had this big, beautiful canopy. But inside, it was essentially empty. It was as good as dead. And when the council came to take the tree down, they lopped off some of the, the major branches near the top. And then, with little more than a push, they were able to completely uproot this gigantic tree. It looked fine from the outside. But under the surface, it was dying. Perhaps as you look around at those who don't know Jesus, they appear perfectly happy, perfectly fine. They don't look harassed and helpless. And, you know, our Australian culture, I think, has a particular attitude to it. It has this kind of, you know, she'll be right kind of attitude where we don't easily admit weakness or pain or fear. We value, I think, as a culture, self-reliance. But I reckon if you look closely at the crowds, if you look at them at this particular moment in our nation's history, I think the cracks are starting to appear in that facade. I think we're starting to see that people are not fine, actually. I read a, a really remarkable article this week uh, in the Guardian newspaper, an article by uh, Mustafa Rakwani. He's a man who's lived in Western Sydney for all of his life. And he wrote an article and said, I've lived in Western Sydney my whole life and right now it's at breaking point. 
I want to read you some of what he said, his observations of how the people in Western Sydney are living right now. He writes, I've lived in Western Sydney my whole life through many challenging times and I've never felt the palpable sense of fear and paranoia that grips the region now. Speaking to doctors, tradies, lawyers, parents, teachers, academics, students, community workers and leaders, it feels like we are collectively on our last nerves. Every day, everyone I know tunes into Gladys Berejiklian's 11am press conference, waiting with bated breath for signs of hope, only to be disappointed. My heart skips a beat whenever I hear mention of the LGAs of concern, knowing that disease is spreading among my community. The worry chews into your nerves like a virus, all of its own. He finishes his article by saying this, anxious, desperate, Scared, paranoid, angry, and hopeless, residents in Western Sydney are hurting. I only wish I knew what to say to comfort them. Do you hear what he's saying in that article? He's saying that as he looks around in Western Sydney, people are harassed and helpless in the face of death. Can you hear him crying out for a good shepherd who can protect them from that enemy? who can quiet their fear and who can give them rest. That's what's going on beneath the surface. Do you see that? Is that how you see people who don't know God, pandemic or not? In, in spite of the facade of self-reliance that people so often put up, can you see the spiritual reality underneath? To share God's love for the lost, we first actually need to see that deep spiritual need. We need to see those people as lost. And when we start to see people through that lens, as Jesus saw them, then we will start to feel as Jesus felt towards them. So let's have a look again at our passage from verse 36. In verse 36, we read that as Jesus looks at these crowds, what is his emotive response? It is compassion. That's what he has on these crowds, compassion. Now, in English, our word compassion literally means to suffer with. Passion, suffer, com, the prefix meaning with, compassion, suffer with someone. It's the idea of kind of feeling the pain for the suffering of others. And we're told many times throughout the Bible that Jesus feels compassion. That's how he feels for the suffering of others. When the sick and the blind come to him, uh, numerous times it says he has compassion on them. He, he feels for their situation. Now, the Greek word that's being translated here is actually a little bit more graphic than our uh, English word, compassion. Uh, the Greek word literally means to be moved in your inner parts. <laughs> Quite a kind of gross idea, really. Uh, but it's talking about a, a, a physical bodily reaction to what you're seeing. Uh, over the course of the Olympics, I like to watch those summary videos that they would put up each night of the, the day's action. And in particular, I like to see the, the falls and the spills. I like to see people, particularly in the, those extreme sports, you know, taking slams and getting hurt. There's something quite enjoyable about that. I'll, I'll repent of that later. But when you watch those kinds of incidents where, where the guy on the skateboard slams himself down onto the floor coming off a jump, What's your response there? Well, if your brain's wired properly, then you probably, you, you wince in pain when they get hurt, right? Your body reacts to their pain. Now, that is the kind of compassion that the Greek word is actually translated. When we feel 
pain and anguish that other people are going through. When, we, when our bodies react like that, that's the compassion that Jesus is feeling here. He is experiencing anguish over the, the spiritual condition of the crowds. You see, it isn't just that he, he knows in his head that these people are lost. He feels it in his heart. He feels grief and angst and sorrow for them because Jesus understands what will happen if these people are not reconciled to God, if they remain lost. It's why when Jesus goes to the graveside of Lazarus, he mourns. It's why when Jesus approaches the unrepentant city of Jerusalem, he weeps because he feels troubled by their eternal destiny. It hurts him. So the question we have to ask is, well, do I share that compassion of Jesus? Am I moved inwardly when I see so many people on the path to destruction? And that's not a rhetorical question. I actually want you to answer that question for yourself. Right now, think about the person in this world that you love the most who does not know the forgiveness and hope that is in Jesus. Can you picture that person in your mind? Does it break your heart to think of that person and their eternal destiny? It should. But of course, the truth is that it is very easy for you and I to let our hearts grow calloused to this reality. Because if we really believe that people without Jesus are lost and that they will be lost for eternity, that's a really painful wound, an open wound to live with, isn't it? And so the truth is that we just tend not to think about that very often. It's so uncomfortable. It, it's an invisible reality. And so it's, it means it's actually really easy to ignore that. But I hope you can see, friends, that, that apathy towards the lost indifference towards the lost. It is literally ungodly to feel that way. That's not how God feels. God is not a dispassionate God. You know, sometimes you might think of God like that as this kind of composed, aloof, you know, unmoved God sitting far off in the heavens. I mean, that's the God of many other religions, but that's not at all the God of the Bible. Our God is passionate. Our God cares deeply for his creatures who are perishing. Our God is distressed by their plight. Are you? Now, I know that this is an uncomfortable topic for us to think about. Trust me, it's an uncomfortable topic for me to talk about with you. But I am trying here to make you uncomfortable because it's only when our heart aches for the lost that we are then poised for what comes next, poised to do as Jesus did. So what is it that God does with his love for the lost? Well, God gets up and goes to them, to us, to rescue. God leaves the glory of heaven for our sake. God's love for the lost propels him Outward. Just think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus doesn't just 
come to earth to suffer with us, compassion. He comes to suffer for us, to give his life as the ransom that we need to rescue, to be rescued, for, to gather in his lost sheep. You see, Jesus doesn't just see the needs of humanity and feel distressed by them. He takes action. Do you notice what Jesus does in this passage when he's confronted by the needs of the crowd? Verse 36, where does his mind go immediately when he sees their great need? It goes to mission. Look at verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. And in the very next verses, in chapter 10, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and to be those workers in the harvest field, to go and to find those lost sheep. And I want to say, friends, that that job there, to go into the harvest field, it wasn't just for his first disciples. It's for all disciples for all time. As long as there are crowds of needy people, well, Jesus is going to enlist his disciples in that harvesting work. And so we are to do what the disciples are being commanded to do here, to pray. Every one of us is to pray, to pray that God would rescue people, to pray that God would raise up harvest workers. And I hope that you are planning on coming to the prayer meeting next week. We must pray about these things. But I hope also that you will pray that God would send you into the harvest field. Because if, if, if you see people as Jesus saw them, and if you feel just even an inch of what Jesus felt towards them, then how could you do anything less but go out? Back in the 17th century, there was a, a Puritan pastor uh, called Richard Baxter. Uh, he was a theologian. He wrote quite a lot of books on, on theology and ministry. Uh, he wrote one book in particular that stood the test of time, a book called The Reformed Pastor. Uh, and in this book, Richard Baxter at one point reflects on his own responsibility towards people who are lost. And uh, I want to read you a quote from that book. It's quite a long quote, but it's I want to say it's applicable not just to those of us who are in pastoral ministry, paid full-time vocational ministry, but to all of us because we are all, in one sense, ministers of the new covenant. We've been given that ministry of reconciliation that we talked about. I'm going to read this quote to you, and so you can just close your eyes if you like and, and listen along. Baxter writes this to his fellow pastors. Oh, sirs. Surely if you had all conversed with neighbour death as oft as I have done and as often received the sentence in yourselves, you would have an unquiet conscience, if not a reformed life, as to your ministerial diligence and fidelity. And you would have something within you that would frequently ask you such questions as these. Is this all thy compassion for lost sinners? Wilt thou do no more to seek and to save them? Is there not such and such, oh, how many around thee, that are yet the visible sons of death? What hast thou done and said to them, or done for their conversion? Shall they die and be in hell before thou wilt speak to them one serious word to prevent it? Shall there they curse thee forever that didst no more in time to save them? Such cries of conscience are daily ringing in mine ears. Though the Lord knows I have too little obeyed them, the Lord, the God of mercy, pardon me and awaken me with the rest of his servants that have been thus sinfully negligent. I confess to my shame that I seldom hear the bell toll for one that is dead, 
but conscience asketh me, what hast thou done for the saving of that soul before it left the body? There is one more gone to judgment. What didst thou do to prepare him for judgment? And yet I have been slothful and backward to help them survive. How can you choose when you are laying a corpse in the grave, but think with yourself, here lieth the body, but where is the soul? And what have I done for it before it departed? It was part of my charge. What account can I give of it? Oh, sirs, it is a small, it, is it a small matter to you to answer such questions as these? It may seem so now, but the hour is coming when it will not seem so. Friends, if you are gripped by the reality of God's love for the lost, if you're gripped by, by any of the realities that we've been talking about these past five weeks, the reality of heaven and hell, the fact and cost of the cross, the Bible's vision of the future, the brevity of life, then it's time to ask ourselves, what are we doing for the salvation of the lost? It, it may seem like a small matter right now. It may seem like a very easy question to ignore. But an hour is coming when it will be the only thing that matters. Let me pray for us. Merciful and loving God, we thank you that you are a passionate God of mercy. We thank you that you did not stay far away, but that your love propelled you towards us. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be our rescuer, to gather us lost sheep back to yourself. But we confess to you that too often our hearts do not share that same love for this lost world that you have. Forgive us, Father, and fill us with your love. Fill us so that we overflow. Fill us so that we cannot sit still any longer. Fill us so that we would go with the gospel on our lips to this needy world, these lost sheep who are harassed and helpless. Please, Lord, raise up harvest workers for this harvest. Please, Lord, call people to yourself. And please, if you are, if you are so pleased, then send us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.